Welcome to Finish Well Homeschooling Podcast, where changing the world starts with changing the home, with your host, Meredith Curtis. Hi, welcome to Finish Well Podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Curtis. This is episode 139, The Amazing History of Flight. I love to fly. I love to travel. And every time I fly, I'm overwhelmed by the miracle of flight. Just thinking that we can soar through the air on a huge, heavy plane, especially, I have to tell you, the biggest plane I ever went on was my first trip to Europe, and the plane was so gigantic and just filled. People just kept coming on and coming on, and I thought, this plane is never going to lift up. But sure enough, it did. And, you know, I just love that. I love taking off. I love landing. And I've enjoyed looking into aviation history because it's so interesting the different people who just laid step after step after step. It it just wasn't like one day Orville and Wilbur said, hey, we're going to fly a plane. No, this was something that men were dreaming of and actually achieved for a long, long time. So we're going to go back in time And we are going to go back to China. We're going to start with China. Now, there is some evidence in the um, in South America that there were some cultures that at least one culture that was able to fly. But I'm not going to get into that because that is like a big story and things like that. But I am going to start with China. We're going to talk about the history of flight. Like, how is it that we say attention passengers southwest? Flight 247 is ready to board. And you grab your carry-on, and you know, if you're a girl you or a woman, you grab your purse, and you head onto this plane, and wow, you are somewhere different in a couple of hours. So let's go back in time to China. A thousand years before Jesus was born, the Chinese people invented kites, and they actually built some huge kites that they would fly on to spy on their enemies. So the first, historically, there's probably others probably flying before the flood, of course. There they were. It's a military thing that they're wanting to spy, and they think, oh, I bet I could build a really big kite, and then I could ride it, and I could spy on the enemy. So that was the first, historically, part of aviation history. The next is a monk, Benedictine monk, named Oliver, And he decided (laughs) that he was going to see if he had some wings attached to him, if he could fly. So he jumped out of the abbey window with the wings, flapping the wings. And, of course, he fell and he broke his legs. But the thing I appreciate about Monk Oliver is that he was so daring and bold, maybe a little crazy, but there was just something. Don't you look at a bird and think, I would love to do that. I would love to fly. And so before the days of airplanes, they're just probably thinking, wow, I want to do that. I want to be able to fly. Monk Oliver broke his legs, but Marco Polo, when he visited China, and of course that is, you know, the big thing, Marco Polo visited China And he stayed there for quite a bit. And then he came home and he wrote 
a book about his travels, and that circulated throughout Europe, and that played a huge role in the Asia exploration that followed, because there was Marco Polo. He didn't just go to a port city on the Chinese coast, but he visited, he met the ruler, and just saw some amazing, fascinating things. He really stirred up the travel bug and got people out on their ships going places. But something else very, very important is that when Marco Polo was there, he saw Chinese people flying on kites. And we know they had been doing it a very long time before Marco Polo went there. So they pretty much had it down. There's tons of things I'm leaving out, but I'm trying to highlight the really important things that happened that people remembered and that the next people built on. Well, one of the amazing things in the Renaissance was, of course, the amazing artist Leonardo da Vinci. He autopsied bodies and drew really exact pictures of the human organs and he also designed in his mind a flying machine and what it would look like and ideas on how it would work and he did that after studying bird swings and we realize you know when we think of that that there are things that birds are able to do bird bones are built a certain way so that they're more lightweight. The feathers help and just different things. So one of the things to do when you're in an airplane is you can watch things that rise up when you're taking off or lower and things that rise up or lower when you're landing. If you, you know, you look out your window and see what's going on. But Leonardo da Vinci, you can look at his designs and he had that imagination and new inventions, new things They never happen without imagination, and it's the impossible dreams that become the invention of tomorrow. So anyway, I'm just so glad he was able to dream. Now, the next person is in Turkey. A man named Hazarfen Kalibi jumped from a tower, and he flies, landing in the marketplace of Scutari. And we don't have any information on how he flew, what he did. Did he use a kite? Did he use something that was similar to a balloon? It definitely wasn't a plane. It was just something a lot more simple. So people are like, oh my goodness, he did that? What happened? What happened? Well, soon after, in 1709, in Portugal, Father Bartholomew de Guzmeo created a model of a hot air balloon. And then he went to King John V of Portugal. So this pastor designs a model of a hot air balloon. And then he goes to the king and he says, look, this is my dream. This is my idea. I really believe this can work. Now, what's so interesting is how many monks and priests are involved in all this. Are you catching that? When we know Jesus, he's so creative and he told us to fill the earth and subdue it. And part of subduing the earth is to dream impossible dreams and see them come to pass. In 1783, so that's almost a century later. So Bartholomew creates the model. And then near the end in 1783 of the 18th century, two brothers named Joseph and Jacques created a hot air balloon. They had three successful flights. 
They had a successful flight with human passengers, a successful flight with animal passengers, and an unmanned successful flight. And their balloon was powered by burning wood. The next year, the brothers flew with six passengers, and hot air balloons became very popular, and they were popular in the 1800s. Now, our next aviation hero or adventurer was Andre Jacques Jarnieren, who leapt from a hot air balloon 2,000 feet in the air. But lucky for him, he was wearing the precursor of a parachute The official parachute wasn't invented until the 1900s, but this was the beginnings of the parachute, and that guided him safely down. So we're glad of that, because 2,000 feet is really high up. I just think about that, and I think, oh my goodness, what courage did it take for him to step out of the balloon, looking down so far, and think, okay, I could lose my life right now, but I want to see if this can happen. And you'll notice that in aviation, just these people who are so bold and so daring. So now we move to England, and it's 1799, and there is a nobleman named Sir George Cayley, and he created a design of an aircraft. So it's it's just a fixed-wing aircraft like a glider. So he worked on that, and then 50 years later, his grandson completed a large glider that could fly an adult. So Sir George Cayley, the grandfather, he was one of the first people to understand and identify weight, lift, drag, and thrust. And so he's considered the father of aviation. If you learn about birds, if you learn about flight, if you're really studying it, especially if you get into aeronautics, aeronautical engineering, and things like that, you have to understand how they fit together with the weight, the lift, the drag, and the thrust. And so sometimes in the smaller planes, they'll ask people, a passenger, how much do you weigh? And you're like, what? What do you mean, how much do I weigh? But all of those things play a part. Sir George Cayley, the father of aviation, his grandson carried on his work. And I thought that was a powerful dream because he he got the basics. And that's what is so cool because at that point in the early 1800s, they got the basics. Now, they didn't understand fully how to make them work, but they understood those four principles, which today in the 21st century, those are the principles that we're using. And so what is so exciting is that he had these principles. He taught them to his son. He taught them to his grandson. And his grandson finished the dream. I mean, I'm sure that his dream was bigger than that and the grandson's dream was bigger than that, but that was the part God called them to play in aviation history. And I I just think it's so cool. So in 1890, so we're getting close to the 20th century, Clement Ader flew a steam-powered one-wing plane. He flew it for a distance of 160 feet, and then, of course, it went down. Now, Otto... Lilienthal enjoyed several glider flights a year later, and these flights were observed to be safe and repeatable. So a glider was before an airplane, and you've seen a glider, like toy gliders. They're very, they're very different from an airplane. I mean, still similar, but 
people began to see gliding in a different light. So over the next few years, he improved his designs, and unfortunately, he died in a glider accident. So that kind of, you know, oh, but we're getting close. This is 1891, so we're just, wow, a decade away from the Wright brothers. In 1900, the Zebulon took her first flight. Now, an airship, okay, so a Zebulon is an airship. So in that way, it's kind of like a plane. People, passengers are inside, but it's also more like a balloon. So it's powered usually by some some kind of fire. What happened, the Zebulons were really popular. The Germans invented them, and the Germans used them a lot in World War One for reconnaissance missions to, for, to spy, to spy on the enemy. And so when the Germans lost World War One, they had to destroy Arthur Zebulons. But of course, they kept a few and then they began flying them again when Hitler was in power in the 1930s. And they would carry passengers and they actually had Zebulons that went across the ocean And unfortunately, in the 1930s, there was this huge accident um, somewhere, I believe, in New Jersey. Um, And so the Zebulon just really kind of went out of style then because with the fire factor, it's not as safe for passengers as a plane or a glider. Now we come to what we've all been waiting for and what we think about, and that's the Wright brothers. The Wright brothers actually were entrepreneurs, and they are a great example. If you want to teach your child to be an entrepreneur, study the life of the Wright brothers, because they were super, super bold, and they they, they were just very smart. And they opened a bicycle shop, and then... They, their heart began to be set on flight. In 1900, they took their first glider flight. And then they modified their glider to make it more flyable. And in on December 17, 1903, they had their first successful powered, manned, heavier-than-air flight. It only lasted 12 seconds. But, I mean, 12 seconds, 12 seconds, it... It it flew in the air, and, you know, a glider's kind of carried by the wind, but this was powered. This was flown by a pilot, so very, very, very exciting. And so what they did is over the next few years, they kept modifying their plane, changing something here, changing something there. They in, improved their flighting, and here's where these entrepreneurs who used to own a bicycle shop came in. They started a business, and they sold their airplanes, and they trained pilots. So they would sell their planes to Americans, to British people, French, Italian, and German buyers, and the U.S. War Department. And eventually, they kind of got more out of the airplane building business, and they got more into the flight training business. But they that was how they supported themselves. They would fly airplanes, travel around the world. People started crossing the English Channel. They started getting faster. They were flying across North America, and they had the first night flight. So Louis Berriott flew across the English Channel. Glenn Curtis went, won a speed test flying a plane. Carl Rogers from New York 
flew a plane from New York to California, and that was the first time flew across North America. And the first night flight was Charles W. Hamilton. So all of those people made ground. They were all pioneers in their specific area, and they all loved to fly. Flying became so, so popular. It was a time coming from the 1800s where people invented things and then everybody wanted one and then everybody was working to improve them. And it it was just a really fun, exciting time. Now we seem to have more that someone creates something and they might sell it, but they kind of keep a corner on the market. So it almost becomes like a lot of our computer companies are more monopolies. But this was just such a free market time where there were so many improvements made so fast because people were free to go ahead, okay, I'm going to try to make a better plane. I'm going to try to do this. And it's just very, very exciting time. And and planes improve so much so quickly. And then the first helicopter. So the first helicopter was flown in 1937. And then in 1939, Ignor Sikorsky piloted a helicopter lifting off the ground three feet for 10 seconds. So in the 1930s, that was huge. Three feet for 10 seconds is the helicopter. But then you go to the 1960s, and it was the helicopter that was the workhorse of the Vietnam War. Whereas in World War One, it was the plane, the brand-new plane. So the first manned engine-powered plane is 1903. 1914 to 1918 is World War One. So that's just a decade later. And planes are playing a huge part in World War One. At first, the brand new airplanes were used for reconnaissance. So the, the World War One pilots would just wave to each other, even if they were enemies. But then what happened is one day, <laughs> they, one of them threw a grenade out of the plane at the other pilot. And then they started carrying guns for safety. And then they started shooting them. And then they started dogfighting. And so, World War One dogfighting was a huge thing, and it really in World War Two, uh, our president George Herbert Walker Bush was a decorated hero. He was he was a, a World War Two pilot and a dogfighter. Eddie Rickenbacker was a United States dogfighter, just amazing in the air. And the Red Baron for Germany, of course, you know, if you've ever watched Snoopy cartoons, you think, who is the Red Baron? Well, he was this amazing German pilot who unfortunately killed a lot of allies in dogfights. So the dogfight was almost like a dance in the air. And the pilots would swoop and swirl and turn and dodge. And it was really quite amazing to see. But, I mean, we're talking about a fight to the death, though, as well. So it was a very serious thing, too. The pilots learned to fly their planes in all different directions to avoid a hit. So it's interesting sometimes when sickness comes or war comes that so many inventions, so many new things are learned out of necessity. People just say, I've got to figure out how to do this. So, And if you want to learn more about World War I heroes, since we're talking about World War I, I have a podcast called Seven Amazing World War I Heroes. And in the show notes, you can just click on that link and it will take you right to the podcast. So we're going to take a break now and we're going to have a message from our sponsor, which is Powerline Productions. And then we'll be right back. Thank you. 
History shouldn't be boring. Meredith and Laura have some exciting new ebooks to bring the fun and excitement back into history. Studying the Middle Ages? Get Let's Have Our Own Medieval Banquet and Cook Up Some Fun. Studying Ancient History? How about making some recipes from the Ancient History Cookbook? Or get some creative ideas from Let's Have Our Own Olympic Games or Let's Have Our Own Archaeological Dig. These books are available at Amazon.com. The ebooks are available at PowerlineProd.com. Powerline Productions exists to serve you. We want to equip you to be joyful and successful in your homeschooling adventure. Powerline Productions. Being world changers, raising world changers. been listening to Finish Well Homeschooling Podcast on the Ultimate Homeschool Podcast Network. Now back to your host, Meredith Curtis. Hi, welcome back to our podcast about aviation history, the amazing history of flight. We are so excited that you're with us, and we've talked about the first airplane. We've gone through balloons. We've gone through people jumping out of church windows with attached wings. We've talked about the Chinese and their kites big enough that a man could fly in them, and now we have dogfighters in World War One. Well, in 1916, in the middle of World War One, of course, now this is happening. Planes are being used in the war. They're brand new, a decade old, and they're being used in the war. So Boeing is founded by William Edward Boeing. He was an aviation pioneer, and the company designed, manufactures, and sold airplanes. They still do. That's um, Boeing is a huge company, and they actually have a lot of government contracts, but they also make planes for all the airlines, Southwest, United, Delta. Boeing will make those planes. So later on, they ended up designing, manufacturing, and selling missiles, rockets, and satellites. So they're very diverse. But Boeing is a huge company, And it got started really a decade after Orville and Wilbur Wright flew their first plane. And then, of course, a few years later, they started their business. But what's interesting is that Boeing, like, grew with the time. So they didn't just stay with planes. They added missiles. They added rockets. They added satellites. The USS Langley, again, we're making history. This is two decades after Wilbur and Orville Wright fly their first plane. In in 1926, the very first aircraft carrier is commissioned, and that's the USS Langley. And that is so cool. Aircraft carriers fascinate my grandsons. And we did a, a little, uh, we were set in the 20th century, and we actually brought in a, a, a toy aircraft carrier with little planes. And you just think about this huge ship in the ocean That's like a city, a floating city, and on the very top is this runway, and these planes are landing. And if you, if you're, if you travel a lot, you know, like, the average commercial flight, you need a really long runway to slow down and stop, and these are 
fighter jets. And yet they're slowing down and stopping on that runway. So it, really, really amazing. And the first aircraft carrier, of course, was commissioned in 1926. Now, a year later, Charles Lindbergh, he's just kind of a fascinating, odd kind of quirky guy, but he really loved, he really loved flight. And he really was an adventurer and he decided, I'm going to fly across the Atlantic Ocean all by myself. So that's what he did. In the spirit of St. Louis, he flew from New York to Paris. Amelia Earhart, not wanting to be outdone, she decided she was going to be the first woman to cross the Atlantic, and she did. And her, we were just talking about her today, my friend Hosanna and I, because I was saying, you know, I was telling her I was, I, I'm going to be doing a podcast on the history of flight, and she said, what about Amelia Earhart, and what happened to her? And I said, oh, wow, that is a mystery, you know, and I, I was just sharing, like, some people think that they found pieces of her plane on a desert island, so maybe she landed on a desert island. Maybe she ended up going down in the water, but the plane washed ashore. They're just, we just don't know, but it's so sad because she was flying around the world, and they had radio contact with her the whole time, and then they lost radio contact with her. So we really lost an amazing pioneer woman, and she was very, very brave. Toy airplanes, of course. If we have these big, cool planes, we've got to have toys that kids can play with. So in the 1930s, model airplanes became popular. And I remember seeing my neighbor, he and his dad built a model airplane, and they were so excited. And they worked on it for months. I mean, these had tiny little pieces, and you had to glue them together just so. And then, of course, once they were done, they would fly it. And I just think that's fascinating. I think just once you should build a model of something because it it's very tedious and very time-consuming. And some people would only want to do it once, but you just learn so much by doing that, going through the process, but then, of course, of whatever you're doing a model of. And so my friend, the little boy, dreamed of growing up to be a pilot, and that was true for so many little boys. And then remote control planes became popular with kids. And, of course, you know, they're the most popular with dads, right? Remote control cars and planes in my neighborhood when I see them, over half the time, I see them with an adult man, not not the kid that maybe they were bought for. There are some that were created just for men. I told you about the Zeppelin earlier crashing in New Jersey and bursting into flames, and that was just a really sad thing. And it, But even though that was happening, so the Zeppelins just kind of faded away. But commercial airlines started, and... So just like the Wright brothers started a business selling planes and giving pilot lessons, other folks started businesses flying passengers in planes. So the very first commercial airline company was KLM, and they were founded in 1920. And then Qantas from Australia and Finnair from Finland were founded in 1923. So early European airlines were spacious and comfortable and the cabins were luxurious. In America, Pan Am and Northwest Airways were the only ones who had international flights in the 1930s. So now it's the 1930s. World War One is over. 
And all of a sudden, people are flying all around the world in these huge commercial planes. We have gone a long way since the glider in the very last decade of the 1800s. So now it's just four decades later and all this ingenuity, all this creativity, it's just all this boldness and daring to dream. It's so, so exciting. And then, of course, World War II comes. And in 1941, United States fighter pilots flew across the Pacific together. And the Tuskegee Airmen, the first black fighter squadron was was formed and and they were really heroic in World War Two. I love Tuskegee Institute. If you ever have time to just research that, and uh, George Washington Carver and Booker T. Washington, amazing men of God and amazing in their fields. Uh, George Washington Carver was a scientist, but Tuskegee Institute, wow. What it started as I just is so impressive. But anyway, I, I digress. So not only that, but of course, there was a surprise fighter plane attack on Pearl Harbor. And, you know, that's what brought us into the war was this attack by planes. And that's a huge part of aviation history. Now, you know, in the beginning of World War II, they're just checking out the enemy. What are they doing? And then we have the dogfight starting. But now this is fighter planes knocking out an entire base with ships and just leveling things to the ground. And so times are changing and immediately, as the U.S. is entering World War II, airplanes are playing a huge role in the battles of World War II. And eventually, we have an Allied victory. But let me tell you, there was so much fighting going on in the air and so much bombing from the air. The Battle of Britain, they just bomb after bomb after bomb after bomb on the cities of England. And so, you know, parents were sending their children to go stay with relatives in the country. But can you imagine, like, say you're born in 1880, and here it's World War I, and you're just in your early 60s, and you think, oh, my goodness. Like, how did this beautiful invention turn into something that could drop a bomb and destroy my house, my family? It's You know, it's it's just interesting because whenever you're talking about Something innovative and wonderful and amazing. God bursts these dreams in our hearts for good. And airplanes can take missionaries into the remotest parts of the world. But on the downside, the devil always tries to come in and use it for something negative. And so, um, you'll always see that. You'll, you know, like technology. Wow. What an amazing thing. We can email someone who is living across the world we can we can send stuff over the internet that hopefully someone living in a country that's close to the gospel will read and be able to learn about Jesus but at the same time and and here's the sad thing the internet's filled with pornography and it's enslaving people so god bursts dreams in our hearts the devil always tries to corrupt them but it doesn't mean that we should stop dreaming. And it does mean that we have to be really vigilant and really discerning in how we use new things and and old things too. 
If you want to learn more about World War II and the attack on Pearl Harbor, you can listen to my podcast. It's just called Pearl Harbor 12741, and you can listen to that at Finish Well Podcast at the Ultimate Homeschool Radio Network. And there's a link right in the show notes. This is episode 139, and you can just find the link and look at it. So we move in to the golden age of flying, which was the 1950s. Finally, in the beginning with those planes, even the ones that are carrying passengers, the propellers were so noisy. So if you were going out and you didn't have those nice little tubes to walk through, jetways they're called, but you know, they feel like you're in a tube, but no, you don't have any of the, you walk downstairs onto the tarmac and then you walk over to the plane and you walk up steps and you'll, as you walk up steps, you hear this super loud propeller. So the minute you're out of the airport and you're walking across the tarmac, you hear this loud, loud propeller. Well, in the 1950s, they were able to get rid of the propeller and then no more noise. And I'll tell you what, plane tickets were not cheap back in the 1950s. But when you got on a plane, you were treated like royalty. And that was true in the 1960s, too, because I was born in 1962. And I remember flying, and we would have Salisbury steak. And if you were in first class, you would get filet mignon or lobster. And you would have, like, this beautiful meal. You'd have a a main dish and a side dish and a potato or starch, and then you'd have a salad, and you'd have a dessert, and you'd have a roll with butter, and you'd have unlimited supply of whatever you wanted to drink. And so now, of course, we get peanuts, and if we're lucky, a drink. (laughs) It's just such a different world. It's so funny, and people dressed really nice to travel. They would wear, men would wear suits, and women would wear stockings, and beautiful dresses, and high heels. It's just It's just such a different world, you know, and now people kind of, I've seen people wear their pajama pants on, on the airplane. It's so funny. And of course, they always said, would you like a magazine? Would you like a newspaper? Would you like a pillow? Would you like a blanket? Now, sometimes you have to buy those things. Although what I found is when you travel overseas, you get a lot more of the lush treatment. And because so many people are diabetic, the last two flights I was on overseas, They had food and drinks out in the kitchen area. They had it out all night long. So after they served the last meal and until breakfast, if you were hungry at all, you could go and get something to eat and get something to drink. But, of course, if you're flying from here, you know, I live in Florida. If you're flying from here to New York, forget that. It's your peanut and your drink. The flight crew is the pilot and the flight attendant. And they operate the airport and take care of the passengers. So most planes have three pilots, the captain, the first officer, and a navigator. And then the ground crew takes care of everything at the airport. So your baggage handlers, your ramp agents, your gate agents, ticket agents, reservation agents, and crew schedulers. All of them are called the ground crew, and then the flight crew, like I said, would be the pilots and the flight attendants. So what happens now? Like, where do we go from here? We already know that 
Flying isn't luxurious like it used to be, but it's still pretty fast. And honestly, it's not a bad deal when you consider, like, if I wasn't flying, like, we're going to Colorado to see our newest grandchild soon. And we are going to fly. And I was complaining to my husband, oh, my goodness, this ticket is so expensive because gas prices have suddenly gone up in 2021. But then I look and I think if we drove across from Florida to Colorado, that would be at least a four-day drive, maybe five. And think about we would have to stop for a hotel each night. We'd have to stop for food. You know what? Maybe I am getting a pretty good deal on this flight. So what happens to flight next? We, we've got jumbo jets and rockets and the Concorde can fly faster than the speed of sound. And flight just continues to advance through the 20th century, through the 21st century. So I think it would be fun for you and your children to imagine what is next? What are we going to like fly to planets? Are we going to be able to fly to the moon, have a picnic and come home? Are we going to have little space cars like I used to see in the Jetsons? That was a cartoon that was popular when I was a little kid. So what is going to happen next? You and your child can talk about that. And that's a great jumping off place when you're talking about aviation. But I just want to share some ideas with you. If you want to explore planes, if you want to explore aviation, if you want to explore airports, field trips are so fun. And if you ever have an opportunity over the years, I have friends that are flight attendants or pilots. It's really fun to learn about their job and what they do and how they got trained to be in that place. For people that flight school is expensive if someone wants to be a pilot. And so a lot of times if someone wants to be a pilot, they'll take the Air Force route or the military route into learning to fly. And then after they retire from the military at whatever point they want to, they might serve their full time or just, you know, serve five years or eight years. Then once they can, then they can move from there into other flying and eventually move into flying commercial airlines. So exploring careers, flight attendants, what do they do? They're a lot more than just pretty and handsome faces passing out food. They actually have to be trained in first aid and how to help passengers escape if there's a problem. So what is involved in being a flight attendant? What is involved in being a ticket agent, in scheduling, in imagine one thing that we did one time is we designed an, an airline. So each of us designed our own airline, all the kids. And you had to think, okay, the fun part, okay, what is our airplane going to look like? And what's our slogan going to be? And, you know, come up with an ad. But then you have to think about, like, all these things, like, how many jets are you going to have? How many big planes? How many small? What is your hub airport going to be? And what other cities are you going to go to? Like, Allegiant Airlines, they have chosen to stay at small airports. So they fly from small airport to small airport. And that is their niche. And they're able to do really well in that niche. Now, other planes like Southwest, Southwest's niche is that they never charge you for your bags. 
but they don't assign seats. So they charge a little extra if you want to be, you know, the first to pick your your seat and stuff like that. But all economy, there's no first class kind of like, hey, we're all part of the same team, you know. And they, of course, have a hub airport. Delta, I know Delta's hub is in Atlanta. I, I think Southwest's hub is in Texas, but I am not sure. But anyway, so there's learning about that airline hubs and where the airplanes go, learning the different stories about different airlines and who started them and why they started them. And that can be fascinating. Famous pilots. And then when you're talking about the actual flying itself, then you're talking physics, physics and physical science. So that is something fun to study. And even when you're talking biology with the birds, you're really, when you're learning how they fly, you're really talking physical science or physics. And then flight just goes right into unit studies. So perfect for unit studies because there's so many options to explore. And you can read books about pilots. You can read biographies. Like uh, there's a million biographies about the Wright brothers for every age level. You can build model airplanes. You can interview people who actually fly. You can interview people who love to fly and people who hate to fly or are scared to fly and figure out why. You can find out more about different airlines and where they fly. One time I saw this map and oh, I should have, I should have looked it up so I could give it to you, but just Google flights across the world and you can flights across the world map. And this map was just, it, it just showed all the flights that were going across the world. And I thought, the most terrifying job in the whole world must be to be an air traffic controller because someone is in charge at each airport of telling flights when they can take off, when they can land, and knowing that all these flights are in the air at the same time. Wow. So anyway, that's kind of cool to look at. And then you think if a flight is delayed, does that mess things up? So that's another thing. There's just... There's so many different aspects when you're thinking about flights, when you're thinking about flying. And I think children really enjoy planes. They really enjoy flight. They really enjoy airports. Like that just is fun and exciting. So I hope I've whetted your appetite for some ideas for study. And I hope you have learned something new about aviation history. And I am looking forward to being with you again the first and third Monday of every month. So God bless you. And until we meet again, have bright, beautiful days. Thank you for listening to Finish Well Homeschooling Podcast with Meredith Curtis and the Finish Well team. Please listen in every first and third Monday of each month at 7 p.m. Eastern Time here at the Ultimate Homeschool Podcast Network.